0: Episode 195 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now.
1: Yeah, hey, I'm Greg Crino. I'm a pilot for United Airlines, and I've got my own podcast at uh, the Greg Crino Show. So check it out.
0: Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by the Finer Points. The ground school app contains knowledge and skill videos. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com av nation what is going on and welcome back to the pilot the pilot podcast my name is justin seams and i am your host Today's episode is with a fellow podcaster, Greg Crino. He runs the Greg Crino show where he interviews experts and talk about how they have got to where they are today. It's a great show. Go check it out. But Greg comes on today to talk about his story, talk about how he became a pilot, how he took a step away from aviation and become a lawyer and then get back into aviation. He's a very experienced aviator flying for United. He has a lot of time in one of the coolest military planes, the A10 Warthog. It's just a great story. So definitely listen to this, share it with all your friends. And if you like the podcast please please subscribe to the show send it to all your friends make them subscribe the more people that subscribe the higher it rates on the charts that's the only thing that matters when it comes to charting is how many new subscribers you have so get as many people as you can to subscribe just take their phone hit subscribe follow whatever you need to do and make them do the same thing as well and once you're done with that check out pilot the pilot on instagram and pilots coffee the best coffee in the game Aviation nation i don't want to take up too much more of your time so without any further ado here's greg crino Greg, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pie the Pilot podcast. Justin, what's going on with you, man? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Excited to have you on. Uh, yeah, we were talking off of four. Uh, you fly the 787. We'll get into that later, but I just want to bring that up because I know I said this before we started recording, but I am very much, I love fractional. I love the side of the industry I'm in, but that's the only plane that I've ever seen that has made me somewhat second guess a career in the airline, just because I think that plane is perfect specifically the United one and whatever I'm in San Francisco and I'm over there by signature and I see United 787 taxi, or maybe they're repositioning it from the maintenance hangars over to the gate for a, a nice late night flight or early morning flight, whatever it may be. It's kind of like, Hmm, wonder what that's like, <laughs> but you're going to live <laughs> that life soon. So we can ask you all about that and what that's like.
1: Yeah. I, you know, the jealousy I think kind of goes, both ways, I, I I don't really understand the fractional part of flying. So I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say. But but yeah, the 787 um is a fantastic airplane. I just finished training on it. And like I told you briefly, it makes me question whether I'm really a pilot anymore because it's <laughs> so automated and it does so much for you. It's really a, a pleasure to fly um it's and flying for united has been great as well i don't want to again i don't want to speak for my airline i'm i'm not allowed to and there's 13,000 other pilots who would have <laughs> possibly different opinions from me so i want to just put that out there but united's been going great and we've been growing and i'm happy to be there and i think we've learned a lot from some of the missteps in the past and we have great leadership so it's a it's an exciting time to be in the airlines and yeah I'm really Five excited eight. to get started start on the 7-8. Yeah. yeah,
0: finally, again, it's an exciting time for the airlines for aviation. Uh, yeah. We oh, hopefully have survived the downturn that was there. Now, hopefully it's only up for what, the next eight, 10 years before we see another downturn.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the average is about eight. So they say in the airlines, it's a, it's a great job, but a terrible career. And I don't want to discourage people from doing it, but you definitely have to have a backup plan. So it's fantastic when it's going well, but when it's not, you know, the guys that that uh, prepare and continue to enjoy it. And the people who don't, you know, they they can suffer. So it's, um, but it's great. I, I wouldn't have it any other way right now. So I'm excited.
0: I think it's really interesting. And I say this too on the show, on the podcast all the time is you have to have a backup plan. You have to have a backup plan, but like that's way harder than people think like what is a backup plan like what do i go to college all right i went to college and i have a bachelor of arts it's like what am i going to do with that <laughs> like how do you have a backup plan you know it's like I, sometimes even yeah. when i say i'm like it's just everyone know you have to have a backup plan and then after i say it, i'm like what is my backup plan like i don't know is it this is it something else <laughs> like it's crazy yeah you
1: know a lot of guys do and i say guys and girls but for guys and girls but people do real estate i've seen that people have just some side business that they have gotten going and i don't think you have to kill yourself to find up that to find that backup plan right now but at least be prepared so maybe you have six months of savings or you can even do something else in the aviation industry i think people who uh you know if you, if you fly for an airline maybe you could have a, a corporate backup or a military the military is great i'm i'm a military guy so if you have a military i think that's a fine backup as well
0: Yeah. No, I guess you're, you're not wrong there. It's kind of, uh, take it as it goes, you know, see the, have the options as they present themselves. And that could be your backup plan. Uh, just whatever you got to do to, to put food on the table for your family.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think again, just the biggest thing is just having the savings as well. So to live under your means, don't be that, that FO that, that, uh, makes captain and then boom buys that million and a half dollar
0: house wait you know, so just- i should not do that i shouldn't have just bought. Yeah, dang it <laughs> sorry man yeah it's too late man <laughs> i have to sell a lot of coffee now well greg i want to get into uh, a little bit more about you so i usually always start off every podcast with a, a why why did you get into aviation uh, was it by happenstance you just were sort of like oh it'd be cool i watched top gun i want to go fly in the military or was it as soon as you're a kid you looked up at the sky you saw flight you always wanted to do that
1: it was the latter for me. It was, it was as soon as I was a a kid, I, I can't remember not wanting to, to fly or at least go up into space. I think for me, the, the first, uh, inkling I had toward aviation was actually star Wars. I, I might be a bit older than some of, of your listeners, but way back in the, the late seventies, when I first saw Luke Skywalker, I think that was the initial, uh, impetus toward aviation. So I think for me, it was, I wanted to get, go up into space and why I like that. I don't know. I think it was just, it was always the farthest thing away. It was the most adventurous thing that you could do. And aviation was a stepping stone to get there. So, uh, from there, I, I I bought all the books that I could on space and aviation and airplanes. I, I had been to a couple of air shows as a kid, that my father and my grandfather took me to. And I think I was fascinated just by the the power, the size, and just the idea that you could be up above and just have this incredible view. I think just everything about the sensation of aviation appealed to me, even though I had not done it. I mean, I'd been a passenger. I think I was maybe six years old when I took my first airplane flight. I just stared out the window the whole time. So I just (laughs) loved being up in the air, yeah. And then from there, everything was just kind of gravy. I mean, Top Gun was gravy. Um, you know, the idea that you could be the best and go fast, um, you know, ser- serving your country was certainly part of it. And so that's why I got into the military and, and pursued fighter aviation initially. Um, and then tried to set myself up to, to go into space, but unfortunately that didn't work out. My grades weren't quite as high as I needed and there just wasn't the, the opportunities to get in there. But I flew A-10s in the Air Force, for about 15 years and uh, deployed, did all the fun I could in, in that. And then I think just later in life, the airlines just seemed more appealing for a lifestyle purpose. And so that's always been my progression. I, I've never known a time when I didn't wanna fly an airplane. I think it was just sort of in me from the very beginning. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's it. I don't think it's ever going to go away either.
0: What, uh, what did your, do you have anyone in your family that's aviation related, uh, into flying and anything at all? Are you the first one?
1: Uh, I'm the first one. Although my, my grandfather was really into building model airplanes. So he was uh, fascinated by aviation. He just never uh, learned to actually fly himself. But but no, I was the first one. Um, my 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 dad was a, a police officer, and he's still around. But he's um, he was a police officer, so I think I was always sort of motivated by um, military type of type uh, type of lifestyle in that regard. But I was the first person to do aviation.
0: Was anyone in your family kind of hesitant about you becoming a pilot, especially uh, you or your mom? Maybe being like, my baby's not gonna go fly a plane. It's too dangerous. No, I've been pretty lucky. I've
1: been pretty lucky. I think. I, I never, I was so motivated to do that, that they just didn't, they didn't question me. They, I think they, even if they told me I couldn't, I think they still knew that I would have. I, I think it's certain things. I'm a pretty open person and I'm pretty agreeable in almost everything in, in life. I don't have super strong, um, you know, a, a, opinions and, and, and a lot of things, but when it comes to something that I want to do, they just always knew that that Greg's going to do it, and they never questioned it. Um, no, I was pretty lucky. My my mom was always just supportive, and my dad too. I, I was I felt very lucky. Everybody in my family was supportive. Um, yeah, the danger aspect didn't really even cross our minds. I, they always said to be careful. There were there were times I think in combat uh, when I was deployed. When maybe my my mom or my mom, probably more than my dad, would say, "Okay, honey, like you know be be careful. you know, we think about you and you know make sure you're and and that's all they would have to say, just the one sentence of just be careful, make sure you are paying attention and we worry about you. But that's it. That's it. They never once told me, like we don't want you to do this. yeah, that that, that never that never came out of out of their
0: mouths. So they were all very supportive. What was your path like from going uh, from a kid that just wanted to fly to actually taking the actionable steps to making sure you could go fly? What was that path looking like for you? So it was mostly through the military, and
1: so at the time I was I graduated from high school in 1993, and back then there was the the drawdown. The the Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh, The we had gone the the Gulf War was in 1991, and when that was over the U S was drawing down it's, it's, it's military specifically it's fighter pilot cadre. And so the only options really, if I wanted to become a, a fighter pilot were to go through the military, like they had drawn down the, the ROTC scholarships. I mean, not maybe not the scholarships, but the pilot slots, they had drawn those down and civilian flying just was never really in the cards mainly because of the cost uh, well, mainly because of the cost, but also because I really didn't know how to get there. I mean, I knew I wanted to fly fighters, and so I, it, you, you can't really do that through the the civilian route. So, I knew it would be military, and believe me, I I fought it every step of the way. I was not a a military inclined person. I did not want to wear a uniform every day. I didn't want to have to march. I knew that I would get yelled at. And I knew I knew that there would be a lot of painful things that I would have to do. But that was the only option in the early 90s. Um, so th- I knew that path was going my way. I took the steps to go to the Air Force Academy. I, I'd done pretty well in school and I played sports and I think I was a, a pretty good candidate for it. And fortunately I was able to get in. Um, but but yeah it was it was painful. You know, we just Uh, Again, I knew the civilian route was going to be just not not really viable. And so it was mainly just the limited options that led me to, to where I am today.
0: So you're not alone in that. There's a lot of people that just can't afford or just don't see a way to become a pilot and then their only resort, whether they really want to do it or if it's kind of their only way is to join the military or to go to the academy, ROTC, um, Civil Air Patrol, like all those different kind of routes to be around aviation. Uh, For people that are like in that similar scenario as you, that uh, see the military is their only way to be able to afford to fly an airplane. Someone that wants to go to to whether it's Navy or they want to go to um, the Air Force Academy What do you recommend for someone? How early do you need to really know this is your goal to prepare for this? Because I know like a lot of times when you're in junior in high school, it's already too late. You're way behind the curve like for you to actually get in would take kind of a miracle because you haven't done enough to to prepare yourself. And it's all about uh, pretty much as early as your freshman year in high school, if not earlier of trying to build that resume for these academies, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. I was going to say your freshman year in high school, that's when it's go time. Because your gPA I mean you should be preparing your whole life, like you should have built the skills that studying matters, that uh, doing extracurricular activities matter uh, and just being a good person matters, making sure you're not getting in trouble, you're not getting in with the wrong crowd or whether it's drugs or alcohol or things like that. so I think you build your character when you're young, so in that sense it it starts much earlier, but your permanent resume. Starts to matter during your freshman year of high school because your GPA is what will get you into the into the academy or into ROTC, and that obviously starts uh, during your freshman year. So um, that's when I would start studying and making sure you get good grades. Uh, if you have a weakness, take care of it. Get some tutoring. Not everybody has uh, you know natural math skills or natural English skills. So if you are suffering in a certain area, uh, get the get the help as early as you possibly can. Um, You know, as far as aviation itself, I don't think you really have to worry too much about that. I wouldn't go out there and learn how to fly an airplane when you're 14 years old. If you like it, by all means, go for it. If you think that would be a a great extracurricular activity and you just enjoy it, by all means do it. Uh, But I wouldn't make that my priority. I'd make my priority my grades and then I would make my uh, second priority Ah, uh, just doing some other extracurricular activity that you like, and 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 getting and getting good at it. So if you are good at baseball or maybe you're good at chess, I mean whoever, whatever that might be, just do something else um, that matters. And then I would say maybe in your sophomore year, toward the end of your sophomore year, that's when you need to start building a a, a strategy for applying because t- applying to the Air Force Academy takes some time. And your first step is going to go to what's called an Air Liaison Officer, an ALO for short. And you can just Google the U.S. Air Force Academy ALO program, and they'll link you up with a person in your local area. And that that ALO, it's usually an officer in the Air Force or in the Reserves. Uh, And the same thing applies to Army and Navy as well if you want to go that route. But that person will walk you through the application process. So definitely grades in your freshman year. Start building extracurriculars. Don't worry too much about the aviation aspect, and then toward the end of your sophomore year, start building a strategy for applying. So, it's uh, yeah, you need to start pretty early. Um, but I wouldn't, if you have kids, I wouldn't stress them out. You know, I wouldn't just pile a whole bunch of stuff on them when they're when they're young. Um, kind of take it in in chunks, but it's a slow acceleration as you build up toward going to the academy.
0: Do you find that most people know at 14, 13, 15 years old, that this is what they wanna do? Is this uh, enough? Well, I guess my question is, what if you're a sophomore or a junior, what do you do about getting in the academy? Is it kind of a written off dream? Is it not possible? Or is it just a kind of a long road to go and a lot of time to make up for?
1: Well, if you're if you're 14, 15 years old and, you, and you're and you just now deciding like that you wanna to go to the academy, no, all is not lost. It'll just, it might take a little bit of time. So what you can do if you are in your later high school years and maybe you don't have the grades and um, you, you can't change what you you did in the past, but what you can do is going forward, you can enlist. And then from there, you can apply to the academy. So if you're, say, um, say say you're 16, 17 years old, you know, you got like a 3.0 GPA, which is okay, but not probably good enough to get into the academy. And now you decide that's okay. What you can do is you can apply to the uh, what's called the the prep school. And that's where you do a year at the at a school that is at the Air Force Academy, but it's not the Air Force Academy. So it's one year where they kind of prepare you to apply to the academy. So ultimately, it'll take you five years to graduate. Um, and that's okay. So I know plenty of people who've done that. They graduated high school. They had less than stellar, stellar grades, but they did okay they did a year at the prep school. And then one year later, they had they were at the academy. So they're only one year behind what their peers were. And in a lifetime, in the grand scheme, that one year doesn't matter. Right. So you got the prep school. Uh, you can also just enlist. So if you have very low grades, say you are a person who just did really crappy in high school, for whatever reason, family was getting in the way, um, who knows, you can enlist in the military. And now you're 18. You can do two years, maybe as an enlistee. And then if you do well there, you can apply to the academy. So there's, or, or to ROTC or to OTS. So there's many ways to become an officer in the military. Um, again, two years there, you're, you're working, you're making money. You're the, the military will pay for your school and then you can apply to become an officer. And from there you can learn to fly. So really you don't have to go to the academy. You don't have to go to ROTC. Uh, But eventually you will have to get a bachelor's degree and you will have to go through officer training school. Um, Obviously the bachelor's degree will take anywhere from four to five years to complete. And then when you're done with that, you can go to officer training school. That's like a 90 day, three month program. And then you become an officer. So you'll be a, if you're in the army or the air force, you'll be a second lieutenant. And then you can, from there, get into pilot training and then you're off to the races at that point. So there's plenty of options um, you know, I wouldn't write anything off. There's always a a door. I mean, I have a friend who just applied. He is 35 years old. No way. Yeah. Yeah. He has a bachelor's degree. He's got a bachelor's degree and he, you know, he just had a, a, his twenties and early thirties. He was raising kids, you know, and his, you know, unfortunately went through a divorce. You know, he had the whole gambit and he's 35 now went through OTS and now he has a slot to fly C130s for the Nevada Air National Guard. Wow, that's crazy. So, so it's never too yeah, late. It's it's really not too late. There's all where there's a will there's a way. Yeah. You just got to find someone in the military or just ask questions and and you'll get there.
0: Was the academy everything you thought it was going to be or was it uh, different in any way like when I think of academies, I think of like the first, like uh, you have basic training and all that kind of stuff, and it's just absolute hell. And then uh, I guess from there you build a little bit of a brotherhood, sisterhood, whether you're a boy or girl in the in the academy, whatever you want to call it. But uh, was it everything you thought it was? Me was it different? Kind of share your experience on that. It was
1: everything I thought it would be, which is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> it was so. Here's my story, I, and I think I am probably pretty typical. I was not a, like I said, I was not a predisposed military person. I grew up in Southern California. My dad was enlisted in the Navy for a couple of years, but I did not otherwise have a military desire. When I applied to the Academy, I did go out and visit. So I, um, I, I went out there to see what it was like before I actually accepted uh, their before I accepted their offer. And I saw a bunch of kids wearing uniforms, marching, freshmen getting yelled at. Um, It was cold weather. You know, I I wanted, I was 17. I wanted to have fun. There were very few girls there, you know? (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. I wanted to have that sort of college party experience in the academy was not that. And I decided to go because again, it was my only option for becoming a fighter pilot. And I told myself, if I don't like it, I can always leave. And that allowed me the freedom mentally to at least take the first step. So I went and a course, basic training was just like you said, it, it was hell. It, it I didn't really, I had a couple of people that I befriended there, but the most of the people I didn't feel like I had much in common with. And then I, once I got in the school year, I made a few more friends and as I kind of got through the first year, I'm like, okay, if I just make it through one more semester into halfway through my second semester, I know that all this hazing will go away because toward the end of your second, of your, of your first year, you go through what's called an acceptance, which means you no longer get yelled at. You don't have to march everywhere. You can go off base. You can, you have more freedoms. So I kind of took it in chunks and that Those baby steps in my mind, I said, okay, just get to the next semester, see how it goes. And then you can always quit. Just get to the next training event, see how it goes. If you hate it, you can always quit. And it kept me going enough to where eventually I, I stayed. And I remember toward the end of my freshman year, I said, okay, I've gotten through the worst. I've got a few friends who I like. Let me just go through this one training program. And I remember it was uh, survival and evasion, resistance, and escape. It was called Siri. And I wanted to learn how to survive and live off the land and do all that interesting stuff. And I said, okay, if I can get through this, you know, then I will have, in my mind, done all the pain and I can feel good about myself. And so I did that. And then I was in my sophomore year and I was like, all right, well, this is not that bad anymore. Like I'm doing better. You know, I, I'm not committed. I can make it to the end of this year. And I, I can still quit without any sort of commitment. So, hey, why not just do one more year of free college? So now I'm in the end of my my sophomore year. And then it was the moment that you step into your class in your junior year where you owe a commitment. So if you quit in your junior year, then you owe at least two years enlisted for the military. And I got there and I said, okay, well, that's two, two years. I'm and so I just took it in baby steps. So, yeah, it was all I expected in, in terms of the pain but the pain was something that I could survive and I took it in baby steps. And next thing you know, um, I look back now and I think it's the best decision I ever made because I can tell people I went there and you know, it's not Harvard or Yale, but it's, it's maybe it's, it's sort of up there. It has its own sort of respect, I think. Um, and I, am super happy. I, I went, um, I did, I had a wonderful air force career met some great people and I couldn't have asked for anything better.
0: Yeah, I think you learned a lot about yourself and to be able to understand and kind of um, get over the hard times, knowing that the better times are coming. That's really difficult. I mean, I'm not comparing the two. I played football in college at Ohio State. When Coach Trestle, we got like in a bunch of, of trouble. People sold all their memorabilia. Coach Trestle left. We got a new coach, Coach Meyer. He came in, he ran the show. It was Mm-hmm. absolutely insane. It was pure did You played football at Ohio state. I did. Yeah. I was a backup quarterback nice, at Ohio man. state. Yeah. But yeah. it was pure. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, it was cool. It was pure hell for, uh, the first week was awful. Uh, the first month was yeah. awful. The second month was awful and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It was just so tough and why worse and, and awful, how hard they worked us, how they treated us, everything like that. They pretty much modeled probably hell week, but in, increased it. I mean, it wasn't probably as bad, but increased it, uh, for three months, four months, whatever it might be. And my wife would always, it's a different kind of bad.
1: Yeah. It's a different kind of bad. What you went through is certainly bad. Like I, going through a major college football program, that is, that is like a job. That's no joke. So good for you.
0: Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was crazy. But I, in my mind, it was similar to what you're talking about. You're like, I can, I can do any. My wife always told me, you can do anything for a month. You can do anything for a week. And you just mm-hmm. build on those hard weeks. And you're like, all right, you're right. I can do anything for a week. And then another week starts over. You're like, hey, I can do anything for a week. <laughs> and it turns into a month. And then it just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. And eventually your body somewhat gets used to it if it doesn't kill you. <laughs> you, know, you somewhat mm-hmm. get used to it. And you realize how much farther you can push yourself and you learn so much about yourself in those moments and those instances and you come away with it with so much more for sticking it out for getting through the bad part and i feel like your reward at the end is so much sweeter and so much better when you know and you're so proud of what you've done and how you pushed yourself through certain situations
1: yeah well i think that and you and you and I are both touching on this i think the point is you want to set yourself a goal that is difficult but achievable and there will be a there are always times in your life when maybe quitting is—I shouldn't call it quitting—but you when when the when it's time to leave. And so I think what you have to do is set yourself a a goal that okay if I if I hit this, it's okay to leave at that point. And I think in my mind I thought okay if I can just do this one semester, that that's that's good. That's how I feel now. That's a that's a, an achievable goal. I can get there. So let's do that. And then when you finish that goal, then you just reassess. And I think for you, you did a week or a month and you said, okay, if I can just do this month, that's a good goal. I feel proud of myself. And let's just see what happens after that month. And don't, don't even consider what happens. You know, don't, don't look beyond that month, just do that month. And then when you finish it, then you look back, okay, can I do more? And you just kind of go through the process again. And next thing you know, you look back and and you can go, wow, like I've, I've done something that's That's worthwhile.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then you start seeing some of those benefits in the future part of your life as well. Uh, When did you figure out kind of the aviation side of everything at the Air Force Academy? Were you always going for that? Were you always trying to, I know you mentioned space before, but was it uh, learning to fly first? Was that the first step? Or were you trying to figure out how you can get into space as quick as possible?
1: No, definitely I would take it. uh, I, I wanted just to learn to fly first. So I was always about just setting the immediate, Goal, and then and then worrying about the rest later. So, you know, at the academy, um, the I knew that I was going to get a pilot slot from the from the very beginning. So I was very lucky. In 1993, 1994, they had said the Air Force said, "Well, we had we had drawn down our pilots too much. So if you're in the class of 97, which I was, you are going to get a pilot slot. So all you had to do is make sure you're healthy and you had you know above a 2.0 GPA." And you'll be fine. And so I got a two points. I got a two point six GPA. So I did. <laughs> I did not overachieve. Um, so that I knew that part was was going to happen. That I was at least going to go to pilot training. Um, the next step was okay. How do I do well enough at pilot training to ensure that I'm going to get a fighter? And that was more complicated. Um, I didn't worry too much. The first part was soaring. That's where you learn to fly gliders. And I did that as a summer program for about three weeks. And that was more to just give me a taste of it. I knew it wasn't going to be much like flying, you know, a real airplane. It was more like, oh, I think this will be fun. And I knew it wouldn't count. You just had to just basically not kill yourself. It's the pass. So that was easy. Um, but then in the summer after my junior year, so, the, you know, one year before I graduated, we had the T3 program. And that's a single engine uh, piston airplane, low wing, uh, side-by-side seat, fully aerobatic, uh, fixed gear. So we had to do that and that actually mattered. So how you did in T3, you'd get a score and then that score would determine your your class ranking for choosing which pilot training base you could go to. And there were a few pilot training bases. One of them was Shepard Air Force Base in Northern Texas where they had Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training. And if you went to Euro-NATO, you stand at a very, you stood a very high chance of getting a fighter. So I wanted to do really well in T three so I could go to Euro NATO. So I studied my ass off in T three. I anybody, my, my first tactic was always to find a person immediately ahead of me in the program, and so I would get their notes. I would talk to them. Um, that's just how I learned was talking to people who immediately had done what I had done, and that was always my tactic: go to them first. What do I need to know? Sit down with them for an hour and just talk. Unfortunately, fortunately my roommate was right ahead of me so I could talk to him, get his notes. And I studied all that stuff. I, I think I, I took that more seriously than my academic programs, even though I was in school and I got to T3 and I did great. I actually, uh, graduated toward the top, like the top quarter of my class. Um, and that's even with a hook check ride. (laughs) So I failed my check ride, but did so well in my daily rides that it offset. So I ended up getting a pretty high score. Um, didn't get to the Euronado though. So I went to a regular pilot training base, um, which is fine. And I just thought, okay, I just have to do really well. And so I had the same tactic. I, as I was waiting to go to pilot training, at about six months there, and I just talked to other people who were at pilot training, again, got their notes, studied every moment I could, studied the, the emergency procedures, all the basic things that I knew I'd have to know on the first month of pilot training. So whatever I had to know in the next month, that's what I really studied. I was always about a month ahead. And um, I also had a, a, an assignment where I was able to get backseat rides in a T-38, which is a, a jet trainer. So I got backseat rides in the T-38. So I was not worried about air sickness going into pilot training. <laughs> um, and some of those uh, pilots who were flying the T-38 allowed me some stick time as well. So I could just kind of get used to, you know, looking at altitude and airspeed and just listening to the radios, getting used to wearing the equipment. That was always a big thing. People don't, um, I, I think they, they look, they read about flying and they, you can, study all you want, but if you're not used to the smell of the gas, the equipment, you know, the sun, the sweat, all those things, it can really throw you off your game. So if you can get comfortable just being around airplanes, um, that's a big step. So I had that. I I just took everything I could. In the moment I had, I never wasted time. And that allowed me to feel comfortable in pilot training. And I just kind of remained ahead and, and I was in the top probably 10% of my class. Oh, nice. Well, I did very well in T-37s. That's the first six months of pilot training. Got a T-38, no problem. So I knew I was getting a fighter. And then in T-38s, I was about average. So out of the 30 people in T-37s, I was in the top three. And then when that got pared down to nine people in T-38s, I was like number four or five. So I was about in the middle. Um, And then got an A-10. You know, Air Force needed a lot of A-10 pilots that year. You know, half of my class was A-10s. So it wasn't my first choice, but it was a great choice. I loved it. And then, um, got some, got me to where I am today.
0: So yeah, that was a long-winded man. answer. What is it? That <laughs> it? was a long-winded answer. Oh, it was good. Uh, the yeah. what? it's the only, uh, plane that was built around a gun. Yeah, that's true. That that's is true. Every other airplane,
1: I think they attached the gun as more of an afterthought, but the A-10 was like. They started out with what they wanted to accomplish. They said, "We need to kill tanks in Eastern Europe, <laughs> and we need an air. Well, we need an airplane. So let's build what we think, you know, what type of gun this will that will accomplish this goal." And it was that that Gatling gun. And they said, "Okay, we need to build an airplane around this that was uh, survivable, uh, could fly slow enough, turn sharp enough, stay airborne long enough." And they built an A ten, and I, I don't think you could build a better close air support platform even now they, they talk about redesigning it but they would just come up with another A10 and
0: <laughs> <laughs> do <be> the same <laughs> so, plane over again they're like oh we redesigned yeah, it <laughs> like, yeah you i don't think you're going to like
1: imp- i mean you can imp- always improve so now the the question is not what airplane can do cas can do close air support because the A10 is the best at it uh, for for fighter aircraft but do you real does the air force want to do cas so if they if they care about close air support, they'll keep the A ten. If they don't care about close air support, then they'll get rid of the A ten.
0: It was recently, so kind of, right? They talked about getting rid of the A ten, wasn't it? Like almost all but all but signed and delivered, and then they changed their mind.
1: Yeah, they've been trying to get rid of it for thirty years. <laughs> so it's, you know, I I, I'm biased because I'm an I was an A ten pilot for so long, but I do recognize that eventually all platforms have to go away. Yeah you we know, we got the P51 was great we don't fly it anymore the same thing will happen eventually to the A10 but yeah they've been trying to get rid of it since the, the after the Gulf War the problem with the A10 is that it's it's not stealth it's slow in a high threat environment it's going to get shot down but in a low threat environment it's fantastic i mean it was the workhorse in Afghanistan uh, even in Iraq for a long time it's very cheap um, it's with the high engines, it has a less of a FOD, a foreign object debris uh, potential. So it can go to austere airfields. Um, it's, it has all the bells and whistles that all the other modern airplanes have in terms of weapons capability. So it's just, it's, it's like the hammer in your toolbox. You know, it's the same technology that has existed for a thousand years <laughs> or in the A-10s case, you know, a few decades, Yeah, but it just works. So you know if you're going to go again I wouldn't want it to be in the first couple of days in the war you know in a potential war against China or Russia it wouldn't work there but in 95% of the other conflicts that we're in where it's low intensity it it's we need precision we need loiter time you want the A10
0: what was your experience? So we'll like see. the the first time you go see an a ten, the first I mean, you sounded like you were maybe not disappointed, but it wasn't your first choice, like you said. What was it about the a ten that eventually won you over?
1: well, the so the my first choice out a pilot training was an f fifteen c. I wanted to go fast. I thought basically, I just wanted to go fast. <laughs> that was what I wanted to do. And the F-15C was the fastest, highest flying airplane there was, and it could shoot down other airplanes. And I just thought, you know, Eddie Rickenbacker, all those, you know, the Red Baron, I just thought that was cool. So that's why I picked that as my first choice. Now, the Air Force wanted A-10 pilots, and so that's what I got. So really, initially, it was sort of a forced marriage. But as I learned more about it, I just grew to love it. And I remember distinctly... When I first was like, oh, wow, I am excited to fly this airplane. And I was sitting, I was, it was toward the end of pilot training. We had all gotten our, our awards. Like we knew what aircraft we were going to be in. So we're in the last month of pilot training. And I was watching a video with one of my classmates. And this is in 1999, you know, very grainy video online, but they, they did exist. And he goes, Hey, my friend goes, Hey man, you got it. This is your airplane. You got to go, you got to see this video. And they showed a low angle strafe run for the A-10. And it's just, uh, where it's just going low and it's doing a nice long burst of, of bullets. And it sounds like a big chainsaw and it's like, you know, and it goes on for a couple seconds and you see all this stuff explode. And then you see this airplane kind of pull off, you know, 50 feet from the ground. And I saw that and I'm like, Oh wow, that is really cool that. And I'm going to do that. Like, yeah, dude, you're going to fly low. You're going to shoot things and and you're going to be down there in the trees. And And so that was number one. And then number two was, uh, saving private Ryan came out and I had gone to the movies. Saw that with a friend. He was, Hey dude, he's like, if you he's like, go watch this movie, he's like, watch where the P-51s fly over, you know, at the end, he's like that, that's going to be you. It's like, Oh my God. Like you're going to, so you see the, how it helped, how it affected the ground battle, how the troops loved it. And I think that right there was like, Oh man, that, 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 you know, yeah, going fast would be great, but being able to actually service the folks on the ground and see that immediate reward and just be the one down there just wreaking havoc—that's <laughs> gonna do it. So it was those videos, the one in, that my buddy showed me in pilot training, saving Private Ryan. Um, <laughs> you know, that that made me very excited. And then I talked to a few people who had flown it, and uh, it definitely was in a, a category of its own. You know, it's it's a fighter. Like we're technically fighter pilots you know, it's, that's always kind of a gray area because, you know, shooting down other aircraft is not the A-10's forte at all, <laughs> but helping guys on the ground and being down there and seeing the battlefield, you know, up close and personal, um, that, that really is, uh, is impressive. So really it's the mission people.
0: We love the A-10 because we love the mission. So it's, a. Uh, that, that's really what turned it around for me. I was surprised at how maneuverable it is. When I was at Oshkosh a couple of years ago, I think it was Oshkosh, uh, EA Air Venture, and I saw an A-10, I was like, what is an A-10 doing up here? I was like, holy smokes, that thing's sick. <laughs> that thing can do so many things. <laughs> like I had no, I literally had no idea. You look at it, you see it on the ramp. I think it was the first time I really ever saw one. I was flying an aerial survey in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and they have a big right. A-10 base there. And I was like, "Oh, those things are wild!" Like I didn't even know what it was. I don't know. I have much of a history or a knowledge about military aviation, but seeing them around yeah. and you're like, "A ten, that thing's kind of crazy." It's like I'd much rather fly an F thirty five. Who would want to fly that? But then you see it fly, and it's just like that thing is crazy cool.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's only the U S. owns it. Um, you know, it, it's again, it, like I think people or nations. Probably don't buy it because they want, they only have so much money they can spend and they want the multi role fighters. They want the F 16 mainly. Um, So that's why it's mostly in the US. So in the US, we kind of have the luxury of being able to pick a palette of airplanes that are more specialized. So that's why we have it. But yeah, there's not that many of them. It's not the traditional fighter that you would see as a kid. You know, we all look at the pointy nose, fast jet. We (laughs) like the, the roar of the engines. And trust me, I. I get engine envy, you know, I, I wish I could go faster in my A-10 than, than it does, you know, as it is, you're only going to go, you know, three to 400 miles an hour. That's about it. But when you're a hundred feet off the ground and you're down there in the canyons and, you know, you can do a 2000 foot turn radius, whereas the other fighters need a mile, you know, it's, you, you start to feel better (laughs) about what you're, about what you're flying. But yeah, you know, the F-35, I, I have a lot of F-35 friends, and they, they love it as well. It's very, just super automated and it, it can see everything in the battlefield. It has great sensors. It can communicate digitally um, unlike any other. It's stealth. It has so many capabilities. It's, it's definitely like the Tesla of, of modern aircraft. And, and the A10 is like your Toyota pickup truck, right? <laughs> so it just depends on what you want it to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I wouldn't take my Tesla up there in the mountains and, you know, on gravel roads, and and I wouldn't throw a, you know, a lawn mower in the back and you know. But the A10, you can do that. Yeah, you know, you can you can do whatever. You could slap something on the side of it because it's already not aerodynamic at all. <laughs> you're you're not going to hurt it by, uh, you know, oh. if you put a few dents in it. So.
0: Do you have uh, that one yeah. story that you like to tell maybe from a deployment or like that one flight when you're at like this dive bar or you're out with, you're flying the 787 and you guys have a, you're drinking a beer in Paris or whatever it may be. And the captain's like, so tell me about the A-10. What's your favorite flight you ever had? Do you have like one story that's like your go-to to share? Oh man, I there's so many of them.
1: Um, I would say the, the story that I would share the most is is not so much a story about the A-10 itself, although I was flying the A-10 when it happened. It was uh, it was a flight in Iraq and, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a flight in Iraq. We're looking at, uh, what was the time frame here? here? Is probably, oh gosh, there's a couple of stories, but I'll just tell this one. It was uh, November of 2003 and I was <clears throat> flying uh, a combat mission, uh, in in iraq and it was and it happened to be over uh kind of northern iraq and i was a pretty experienced guy at this point i was a four ship flight lead i could lead other airplanes around in the air and one of the more experienced guys i was one, as one of the more experienced guys in the squadron when the wing commander came to fly with us he's the guy in charge of all the fighters in iraq at the time he happened to be a10 qualified but only as a wingman so he was had a lower qualification. And he needed to be led around, and so they. My squadron goes, "Hey, Carino, can you uh go fly the wing commander on this combat mission?" I'm like, oh God, okay, sure, because <laughs> you know this guy's a full colonel at the time. I was a captain, and all you can do is break even on these flights. And, and the guy was kind of a a jerk. He, he kind of came in and just pencil whipped a few sheets of paper, and he's like, "Yeah, just give me an airplane and let me go fly." And we're like, uh, "Okay, sir." Like. we can do that. And so we asked him like, Hey, are you qualified to fly on the tanker? You know, like, do you have, he's like, Oh yeah. Like I've got all my quals. And and we, looking back, it was not a good decision. We just kind of trusted that his quals were up to date. Anyway, we go flying and sure enough, we get a call for a a troops in contact during the flight. So we went out on what was supposed to be like a two to three hour flight. And about an an hour and a half into it, we get a call. Hey, there's troops in contact over Fallujah. Uh, troops in contact just means that there's bad guys and good guys shooting at each other in a fairly close range, and they're going to need air support. And so, like, oh wow, we're getting you know a little low on gas, and so I say, hey, we need to go to the tanker, get some gas, and then we can go to over Fallujah and provide the support that the army needs. So the the air traffic control at the time it was the the um, the AWACS. They say, all right, sure. Go ahead and get your gas then go or Fallujah. So we go get our gas. It's a KC-135 tanker and we're orbiting about 50 to hundred miles north of Fallujah. And I go and get my gas. I top off. So now I'm good to go for like another two, two and a half hours. And then the Colonel, he's my wingman. He goes to get gas. So I'm on the wing of the tanker, just kind of listening to the the radios, trying to get plot coordinates, see where the good guys are, see where the bad guys are, come up with an attack plan, see how we're gonna, you know, help these guys out. And at the corner of my eye, I see this A ten just bouncing around the sky. You know, I see the boom of the tanker being pulled away, and I'm like, this dude doesn't know how to air refuel. <laughs> and I'm like, God dang it! So we're now we're getting delayed because every minute that he can't get gas is a a minute that we can't go over to Fallujah. So he's over there bouncing around and I'm like, I'm not an instructor yet, but I'm trying to coach him through how to get gas. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm like, all right, sir, you know, just stabilize about two feet behind the boom, just freeze there for a second. And then, you know, trim it up and make sure it's all smooth. And then you can go two clicks of down trim. That'll help you get through the bow. And I'm trying to coach him through this, and meanwhile, I'm like listening in on the other radio trying to plot coordinates. So I'm my I got my helmet on fire trying to keep up with this. Finally he gets gas and we go over to Fallujah. And by this time, the the war, I mean the shooting was was over at this point. They didn't really need our help anymore. And they just asked us to go down and just do some low passes to scare people away and make sure that the, the enemy wouldn't re-engage. So anyway, the long story short is it was one of those those flights that just taxed me, uh, mentally in, in many ways, trying to not only deal with a superior officer who was not a good pilot, uh, trying to instruct him, trying to keep up with the battlefield. And I think what I liked most about it was that, Hey, they, we were the only people in the sky at that, that point in time that could even help out these army guys. Um, and then I just felt proud of my performance on that day. So helping him through the flight, uh, we did provide some support uh, for the army as well. So I think just the overall mission that the uh, the A ten had, and the fact that we were needed so much that day, and um, and I think just it was a culmination of a lot of training. And I felt after that, I'm like, hey, you know, if I can get through something like that, I can I can do anything in this aircraft. And so I, I felt like I, my my training had kind of culminated um, at that point
0: how do you talk to a superior that has no idea what they're doing? <laughs> you're like, and well, the, the tricky part is not doing it in like a demeaning way. It's kind of like yeah. having the patience because he's your superior. Be are like, all right, sir, this is what we're going to do. But you're really like, dude, let's freaking go. We need to go save some yeah. lives. Like how do you handle that?
1: So the way you just said it just now is exactly what I'd recommend you. It's use the word, sir. And, but you tell them what needs to happen. So I think if you, you can use the word. If you use the word "sir" and "ma'am," you can say whatever diffuse. you use. <laughs> <laughs> you can almost def- you diffuse about half of the problem right there, <laughs> because you're acknowledging that they are a superior officer, so they feel good. Now the re- the remaining half is a little more tricky. Uh, but you just tell them what needs to be done. So it's just again address them as sir, or ma'am, and then just say, "Hey, this is what needs to happen." And just make sure they they know that you're serious and nine times out of 10, they're going to fall right in line and just do what you want them to do. And if I've, in fact, I've never had a a superior officer uh, question me. So I couldn't really tell you what would happen if they pushed it and said, no, I'm not doing that. You know, at that point, you could just remove yourself from the situation to say, well, all right, sir, then this is the mission. I've got to get this accomplished. Um, If you need to, fly back to the base. There's the base. I can talk, we can talk about it on the ground. Yeah. Um, I think that's how you, you could probably do it. Now, if you're in a crew airplane, I don't know, that one's tough. Um, but again, I think just uh, using respectful terms, sir and ma'am, and then just telling them what needs to happen and then letting them know that, that you're, that you're serious about that and that it's an important mission. I think that's how I would do that.
0: Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Did you know that making the right benefit elections during open enrollment can have a significant impact on both your current financial situation and your retirement? Schedule a free benefits optimization review with an RAA airline specialized advisor before your open enrollment window closes. In as little as 30 minutes... We'll help you build an open enrollment election plan that focuses on your unique situation. Schedule your benefits optimization review with an RAA advisor by visiting raa.com backslash pilot to pilot today. You'll be glad you did. And now back to the episode. Is this something that you guys are able to laugh about when you're on the ground or is it something you don't ever bring up ever again and he knows and you know, but no one else knows?
1: Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> kind of tough. You know, if, they, if they're breaking a rule... You know, that, yeah, those are really hard situations. Yeah. Um, you know, when we got back, you know, I just said, sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't know that you were not qualified for the tanker. You know, that, that's kind of how I said, I think I just kind of apologized when really he should have been the one to apologize, but yeah, sorry, sorry. We must've missed it, but we didn't, I didn't know that you weren't qualified to to do that mission. Um, we should probably not do that again. I think that's what I say is I kind of <laughs> use the word We. Yeah. I use the word sir a lot. I use the word we a lot. I try to say like, I didn't know about this rather than saying you didn't tell me. So yeah. I think I always kind of use reference things in, in in terms of of myself. Um, and I think that's about it. And then, like I said, if the, if the person goes even farther than that, I just say, I'd say my last resort is, all right, yeah, sir, I'm, not comfortable at this point. So I'm going to have to talk to my leadership and then let your leadership take care of it. So in, in in the airlines we have, um, or at least at United, we have sort of the tiered process of how to communicate things like that is you say, um, I think it was, uh, I'm on No, what is it? It's, uh, Oh, it's, it's, uh, they call it the cuss words, comfort, uh, Oh boy, I, I'm missing this. Anyways, two of them are like <laughs> uncomfortable or no, no, I, I know what it is. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned. That's right. Concerned, uncomfortable, and then unsafe. So the first thing you can do is just say, hey, I'm concerned about this. And then that person will go, oh, okay. Well, that can alleviate your concern. Um, but just say, hey, I'm sorry, sir. I'm concerned about this. And then the next thing is you ratchet it up. You could say you're uncomfortable. So, hey, sir, I, I'm uncomfortable here. You know, I don't think we should be doing this. And then, uh, or just say, hey, I'm uncomfortable. And then the last thing is, hey, this is unsafe. We can't do that. So concerned, uncomfortable, unsafe. And that you just kind of start with the lowest when you work your way up. And, you know, most people are not going to fight the unsafe where like, hey, sir, this is unsafe. Like, I'm out. (laughs) And then you can withdraw yourself from the situation. Um, and then now that person's alone. So then that superior officer can decide whether he wants to do
0: this alone or not. Yeah. I was going to say that's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels that you can bring into a, a crude cockpit yeah. kind of like at the airlines or where I fly. Um, Yeah. As long as you can find a way to still be respectful. uh, It's how you phrase the question more than anything. Because if you just go out there and uh, start blaming them or embarrass them them for something that they did wrong, even if it is wrong, they're going to come back at you and kind of be standoffish. But if you can phrase it in a way that's like you both are like questioning it and wondering uh, what's going on and asking in a specific way. Then they'll be like, "Oh, you're right." And if they re they, you can show them and help them realize that they made this the mistake without physically blaming them for the mistake. If that makes sense?
1: Yeah, and I think also keep things within the cockpit as well. So if you're in a crew airplane, you know people don't people don't mind being called out in private as much. So I'm being being called out sucks. But if you are going to call somebody out, then at least just do it in private and just say, "Hey, um, this is kind of." what I'm concerned about, I I, I don't, you know, we don't need to let anybody know about this, you know, but we should probably not do this. I think using words like we, like I said, sir and ma'am, keep it within the cockpit if you can. Um, Use the concern, uncomfortable, unsafe uh, priority list. And that's 99% of it. And then if you get to the very end where you're totally out of ideas and you don't know what to do and this person's a huge problem, then you withdraw yourself from the situation and just say hey i'm not sure what to do i'm going to go contact my
0: supervisor at this point. So basically it's not for the message board. Yeah. Your your internal message board and everyone else to know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, keep things private. Yeah. I think that's that's the biggest
1: thing. Is people just don't want to be called out in public. No, definitely calling not out in private. Cuz everyone yeah. has a bad day.
0: Yeah, people can have, have bad, bad days. Day. Yeah. Weeks, months, exactly. lives, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> uh, so you're, um, you're in the A10. You're getting ready to get out. What was your motivation to leave? Uh, why didn't you want to stay? Maybe fly the A10 forever, stay in the military forever. What was kind of your motivation to get out?
1: I think it was more of wanting to try new things than it was leaving the A10. Um, so for me, I was having to commute between Los Angeles and Tucson, and that was taking a lot out of my, uh, not not only like it was reducing the amount of money I could make, not that that's the only reason, but it was taking a lot of time out of other things in my life. And so I think it was more like, well, I'm at an age now where I, I would like to try other things, whether it's travel, whether it's more time with family, whether it's other hobbies. And the A-10 was kind of getting in the way. And so what I did in my last, it was my last year in the A-10, I said, okay, what else can I do in this airplane that I haven't done? And for me, that was actually like doing a a long combat deployment. I had done short ones that were pretty benign, but I'd never done like a long one where it, we're actually busy, where every day we're dropping bombs and, and getting in there. I w- I'm like, okay, I want to do like one real good one. And so I, I said, okay, if I can check that box, then I'm done. And so I went around to other units and I said, hey, um, I'd like to deploy with you. Can I go with you on your next deployment? And every unit said, you can, but you have to join our unit. And that's going to be for probably another three years at least. And because my my unit in Tucson was a training unit. So I was teaching people to fly the A-10 and it was a non-deployment, a non-combat unit. So I couldn't just do it from the unit in Tucson. And I thought, well, I don't want to have to travel to Indiana and all these other places for the next three to four years. Um, why can't I just go on these deployments right now? Like just go with you for six months and be done. And so that was just never an option. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, if I I don't want to just do this forever. I have other things I want to do in my life and so I think I just kind of at that point decided that was that was enough. So that's why I I left the A10. Again, it wasn't so much the A10 that I disliked. It was just I wanted to do other things and there was just no other option. If they open up an A10 unit in Southern California, I'd be there right now. <laughs> uh so that that was that. Um as far as the the airlines go, I just knew that that was the best long-term career. Prospect again. Just it's a, It not only is it fun. It's nice to be in aviation. I can travel. I can make good money. I've got the flexibility to do other things. It just it's a just a fantastic uh, job to have. Um, and plus, now I've I've done 20 years in the military. Everything now is just sort of optional. Yeah. Um. So I think it's just the biggest thing is just you hit that point in your life where you realize you don't have unlimited time you know if i was 35 years old or even 40 i'd probably keep going but you know now i'm 46 40 you know i'm 47 next year it's like "Mm, i've got to kind of make some decisions so yeah it was tough i miss it though trust me i've got buddies that are still in and i i miss it every day (laughs) i think about going back but then i think about all the other things i'd have to deal with too and i kind of go okay well May, this might be the right decision for now. So who knows, man, if, you know, if United goes under, that's it. And all I got to do is go back to the hog and I'll do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why United? What was it about United that stuck out or was it just kind of uh, the first one to call you? You're like, yes, I'm there. I'll be there soon.
1: Yeah, they're the first one to accept me. Um, so I have sort of a unique situation where I applied to, uh, I, I've done three airline interviews. I applied to Southwest a long time ago. This is in 2007. And, uh, and I got accepted. Uh, but again, this is sort of a side bar, but I ended up going into law school. So I, oh, wow. I yeah, I became, became a lawyer and yeah, I've got a sort of all these other things I was doing. So I, I left, uh, the military and aviation for about four years, went to law school and I couldn't do Southwest at the same time that I was going to law school. So I did that. Um, and then just by luck, I, the A-10 unit where I was near where I was in law school, transitioned to a reserve unit. So I was able to go back in as an air force reservist and, uh, because they were looking for former A-10 pilots, I happened to be there and got lucky and got back in, flew the A-10 again. And then, uh, then applied to the airlines because that's just what you do. And it's just a great job to have. And, um, I always kind of regretted that I was not able to fly for Southwest. And so Delta, um, interviewed me first and, Unfortunately, I did not get accepted right away. They said, we'll come back in six months and we'll re-interview you. And the reason was that they deducted interview points for people who had been out of aviation for a long time. And so before, and it's kind of a strange policy, I think, <laughs> but I was going into the interview with fewer points than most people. And so if I said one little thing wrong, then that was enough to for them to say, "No, sorry, come back in six months. I don't know what that was, but that was their policy at the time. Hmm. I was devastated because I was really wanting to get into the airlines. Um, but then three months later, United called me. And then I got an interview with them and got in with them. And I withdrew my Delta application and everything else and, and off to the races at United. And it's been great because United has a base in LA where I live. And I was, I've been able to be
0: based in LA the, the whole time. So it's been great. So what did, lo- what did law school play? Like, Well, I guess for lack of a better way to phrase it, why did you go to law school? What was the draw to be a lawyer? What did you, what was like kind of your end goal with going to law school? Is it just to kind of uh, try something else, accumulate a different kind of um, career path or was it uh, just for fun? So a little bit of the latter, but I I wanted
1: to get into politics. I've Yeah, I've got a little bit of ADD when it comes to career fields. I'll admit Um, I'm a person who just loves learning about the world and learning how the world works. And wanted to get into politics and run for office and do all those sorts of things and um just loved learning and so i did that Uh, but that was really it i think it was to get into politics and kind of um just be more educated on the world um and so yeah i did that and um it uh I, i thought well if anything it's if i don't like it it's probably better than a master's degree so i I thought, okay, well, if anything, um, there is a backup plan. So yeah, that didn't last very long. I did not. Um, I do some part-time law now, but it, it's not going to be my, uh, major career. So that will, that will be aviation.
0: Looks good on the resume though, doesn't it? <laughs> it does look good on the resume. It's pilot. certainly a talking point. Yeah. yeah. My,
1: my, uh, friends have said, cause there have been times when I've, I regretted that decision, especially when I passed up the Southwest job, I thought, man, you know, aviation would have been so much better. My friends go, you know, Hey, look at the bright side. It makes you less boring. It's very true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something to talk about. So I am yeah. one of those people who, uh, who has left aviation and, and come back and, uh, realized that, yeah, it's, you really, it's, it's hard to beat a career at a at a major airline or or what have you. If you've yeah. got a good corporate one or net jets, it's really tough to beat this job. Um, but it takes a lot of work to get there and there's still risks involved to maintain it as you know, with the COVID and everything else. For sure.
0: Well, when we talked about earlier about having a backup plan and like, how do you figure that out? It's like, well, you have figured it out. Just go get your law degree for four years and then you can always fall <laughs> back on being a lawyer.
1: <laughs> yeah, but man, be careful because it's expensive and that's yeah. a whole other conversation as to whether people should get into law. I, I definitely <laughs> recommend getting into to aviation uh, in some capacity. I don't know if I'd say the same thing about law though.
0: Well, it sets that up one. for uh, for good podcast talk because you can literally talk to anyone because yeah. you can relate to anyone, and with your podcast that you have, you can do that. <laughs> it, thank you, I appreciate you saying that. Um, it, it does. It is
1: nice to be able to to talk to you know a broad spectrum of folks. So, which I, I do in my show. So, if people. Uh, Check it out. There's a lot of aviation stuff on there. Astronauts, a lot of military people. I have a couple of lawyers too. It's a a broad range of things.
0: Go ahead and plug your show so everyone can finish this episode, of course, and then go check yours out too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's the Greg Carino show. You can see it on gregcarino.com i'm up on all the social media sites as well so share it with your friends you know as always the five star rating helps (laughs) um it's a podcast about experts so you can go on there and you can learn about uh, a person's career and uh and you'll get a very broad educated overview and um i think you'll find it enjoyable too so gregcarino.com and carino is
0: k-r-i-n-o perfect And then before we go, I know it's been about an hour, but I really need to know more about the 787. Like I said, it's the only (laughs) plane that I've kind of looked at and just like not fallen in love with, but just really, really like the look of it. I love the mission. I love the idea of flying it, being somewhere cool for a couple of days and then coming home. I've flown on a passenger on a 787 three times. Uh, My dad flies for American, so I've been able to fly standby on it. And we flew from Dallas to Shanghai business class, Shanghai back to Chicago business class. My seat didn't recline for that one, but I still got the full service, so it was fine and worth it. And then the other one was, I believe we flew business class to London, I think. So we've been on it three times and it's so comfortable, so amazing. But talk yeah, about, you're doing it right. I'm, it's the only way to do it, right? <laughs> Ew, once you go business class, man, ooh, it's yeah. tough to go back. The only I thing better is uh, the only thing better is private. I will have to say that, but it's very, oh, very I know, close. I know, <laughs> I am jealous about yeah. that when I see what you
1: guys fly. I'm like, God dang, they're up there at 48,000 feet, you know, going .9 mock
0: everywhere. It's like, oh, it's pretty cool. I do have to ask before we get into 77 actually. You being an airline pilot, when you see a corporate plane, what is what goes through your mind? Are you like, oh, those poor guys, they're they're broke and we're better than them. Like, is that like the typical way that airline pilots look at the smaller planes? Or are they kind of like, oh, that plane's kind of cool. i would be fun to fly that.
1: Yeah. We think that plane would be kind of cool. I'd love to fly that. That's what we think. <laughs> it's good to know. I trust me, most of us always wonder if it's if the grass is greener. Yeah. Um, you know, I think most of us know that the, or believe at least at the major airlines that probably our lifestyle is a little bit better. Like the pay is more secure, but the airplanes are just better in corporate. And most of the time we're looking up and we're jealous because you guys are flying higher and faster <laughs>
0: <laughs> and above the weather. You, know, you got all the bells yeah. and
1: whistles. You, you might have like Jay-Z in the back or something like that, you know? <laughs> so there's, there's, there are, th- there are things that we're jealous of. Yeah. So yeah, don't, don't think that yeah, that we've got it all made. <laughs> um, yeah, the seven eighty seven. know, I, I've only flown it. Well, I've not flown it as a pilot yet. I'm still waiting to do that. I've done all the simulators. I've been checked out. It's it is super automated. So when you go to all to start from a broad overview from the beginning, when you go to start the engines, you hit two buttons. You flip up the, the fuel control levers and it starts both engines automatically. And if there's anything that goes wrong, it will automatically shut down or restart them. <laughs> so, things like that, it's just the automation is great. The cockpit is just nice and big and comfortable. The windows are big. Um, the only drawback to the windows is that it has like this weird coating on them. So, your GPS on your iPad won't, or, or your own ship on your iPad won't quite work. So, you can't like tell where you are. Sometimes oh my gosh. Use- that's weird. <laughs> yeah. That's the only drawback. <laughs> but our, on our nav displays, we, they zoom all the way into like a quarter mile. Oh uh, yeah. So you can see where you are in the airport. You can taxi with it, even though legally you're not supposed to, you can taxi just by looking at your screens on the inside. Um, so that's kind of some cool things. It has all the radios that you could need all the SATCOM, all the HF, uh, everything, um, it probably the coolest thing about it is that it it's all software. So when something goes wrong, the airplane has its own electronic checklist that pops up. So it'll just tell you, "Hey, this is wrong. Here's your checklist." We don't actually have to dig into our own checklist. It'll have the checklist loaded up on the airplane for you. It'll tell you which checklist to run. It'll prioritize the checklist for you. And if you have like overlapping checklists where you're doing like one Say it's like an engine shutdown checklist, and then maybe halfway through it, there's like an engine fire, or some other thing that you have to do in addition. It will memorize where you were on that first checklist, direct you, to, direct you to the second checklist, and then that second checklist. When you're done with that, will put you back to the first one, and it's oh, all wow. on the screen. It's all on the screen for you. That's pretty nice. So the, yeah, the automated checklist is is awesome, um, and then it's just it's just efficient and quiet. I, I've been told that you do not have to, that you should not fly with noise canceling headsets anymore because you can't hear anything. Uh, so you, you will fly with like a normal, you know, cheapy checklist. So you can hear a little bit of some ambient noise. Um, so I'll have to ditch my bows. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as like, so that's kind of the cool stuff on the inside of the airplane. Again, just very automated, just very easy to operate. Um, as far as flying itself, this is the weird part. Again, it's all fly-by-wire and software. Everything's triple redundant. There's like four, ge- God, how many, six generators plus like an, an air vane. So if you lose everything, there's a little propeller that goes out the bottom of the airplane, a little turbine that will spin. And you can at least fly the airplane with using that generator.
0: That's crazy. <laughs> so there's, yeah, it's super That'd just be a bad redundant. day though. That'd be a very bad day. (laughs) It'd be a bad day, but
1: at least you wouldn't like fall out of that. Well, you are going to fall out of the sky because you have no engines, but at least you can control the airplane. Um, As far as flying itself, the here's the cool thing. So when you go into a normal bank turn on any airplane, you go into a bank and you pull back so that you can drag the nose across the horizon. The 787 will pull back for you. So there's a couple of modes that you can be in and like your normal mode, you can go to a 30 degree bank turn and it will pull back for you and drag the net. So you don't actually have to pull back and trim. That's the weird thing.
0: That's crazy. Plus, if you if
1: you go into more than 30 degrees of bank, it will kind of fight you. There'll be like a little bit of resistance in the yoke saying like, you know, do you really want to go more than 30? And if you're like, yeah, and I, you kind of push it farther, then it'll do that. And you can go in, mean, technically, I guess you could roll the airplane over if you wanted to. But if you let go, it will correct itself back to 30 degrees of bank. Wow. So, and uh, you know, even if you were to stall the airplane, so say you're up at 35,000 feet, you go into a full stall. If you just let go, eventually the airplane will ride itself. It might take 10,000 feet, but it'll eventually ride itself and go into an orbit. So that's crazy. It's uh, yeah, the flight controls, very automated. It Like I told you before, it makes me question whether Like I'm, I can consider myself a pilot. It's, it's, I think that probably the disturbing part of the, that disturbs me is that if somebody goes right into the 787, you know, as their first major, you know, airline or their first crew airplane, you really, you don't get the skills. Um, So I think in the U.S. and most of the Western countries, we had to fly other airplanes leading up to the airlines, and so I, I trust the skills of our pilots, but in some of those countries that are developing and aviation's brand new, and they just give them seven eighty sevens and throw in an, an FO who's only got a couple of hundred hours, you know that FO is not going to be, not going to have very good skills. So if if that FO then goes into like a seven thirty seven, which is a much harder airplane to fly, um, they're they're not going to do very well. It's it's a concern for the for the industry to have such good automation. Um, but that said, I like it. I, 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 feel comfortable in it. I'm sure you do great as well. Uh, most of us in the U.S. I think would do fine, but yeah, it's, it's a beautiful airplane. I'll have to let you know how it goes when I have my first yeah, flight.
0: Please do. <laughs> the real crazy thing I think about all this stuff is that this is kind of the, uh, the beginning of seeing what planes can really do in automation wise and maybe the future being with whether it's one pilot whether it's no pilots like what the future really holds when these planes can already are capable of so many things it's like how far off are we actually away from one pilot or the just maybe not even having one pilot on there but the capability of this plane doing everything like maybe you hit autopilot on the ground and it self taxis it takes off you know and we're just there to manage like it's really who knows what the future is going to be like for aviation as technology continues to get better and better and better.
1: Yeah. It's going that direction. I I think what what gives me some peace of mind is that at least for my job is that, you know, most of these airplanes have 15 to 20 years of of life. And so, you know, where are we going to be in 20 years? So I think you're going to have a good 10 to 20 year warning before, you know, your job might go away. So I think that's plenty of time, but, but yeah, it's a concern. I mean, the 787 will land, uh, we'll, do, we'll do an auto land single engine. It's crazy. Yeah. In fact, when you if you lose a if you do a V one cut, so you lose a lose an engine right after rotation, it, it it does a little bit of rudder. Like it'll give you a little bit of yaw, so you can kind of tell which engine you lost. But shortly after that, once you're in the air, you throw the gear up. They say don't use the rudder. Don't don't try to trim it. It'll do everything for you. <laughs> don't touch Just, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it has a, it has a HUD. It has a head up display which as a fighter guy is just beautiful. Um, it's it's really a joy. It That's really awesome. is. I'm
0: excited for you. It's an awesome plane to fly and yeah. I look forward to hearing how it works out for you and, and all the cool stories you get but uh yeah. i have a section for you this is called the rapid fire section so these are just very sure. quick questions so answer don't explain anything just answer it as fast as possible and it's all, aviation all right. related. oh fun all right yeah,
1: it's like a psychology
0: exam yeah okay. not as hard but yeah <laughs> i'll score it at the end i hand it to united and you might lose your job right. but i'm kidding Oh shit! <laughs> all right what's your favorite airplane ever made i gotta say the a10 corporate airplane corporate jet what's your favorite
1: the, one of the high G what a G seven something one, yeah because that's the newest. And they just coolest. came out with a
0: Gulfstream seven hundred G seven hundred. We'll say that one. All right. What about airliner? My favorite, like airline. Yeah, airliner, so the actual airplane that airlines fly. Seven thirty seven. Oh, look at that! Didn't yeah, that.
1: yeah, yeah. Kind of off the X. I kind of yeah. feel like a
0: pilot. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Oh. Um, I wouldn't even know the name of it. You can but describe I, it. We can figure out later.
1: Oh, God. What's that one? I and mean, there's probably a few of them, but what's that one that NASA flies? It looks like a whale. They call it the guppy.
0: Oh, it, I don't know the name like of it either.
1: Yeah. Bubble. Yeah. It's got propellers. I know what you're and and talking about. I think it has. And it, it's just like, uh, it's just, yeah, it's just gross to look at.
0: But. <laughs> just, I love it. <laughs> yeah. That's one of them. I'm sure there's okay. other ones too, but. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Oh
1: wow! Um, I you know I, I can't really something I wish I knew before I became a pilot. I, I would say just the uh, the volatility, the volatility of the career, like you know the fact that you could get a pandemic and then almost lose your job, like you could almost lose your job. Just within the matter of a month or two, if something happens, so I think the volatility—it's oh, yeah. not a—it's not a sure thing. Could be a week, could be a day. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, shoot, we're like, you know, like somebody launches a missile over a country, and then all of
0: a sudden, that half of the world is shut down. It's yeah. like Jesus, it's not good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's one person in the industry you'd like to be most? In the
1: industry, that,
0: that could I'd have like died, could be someone historic, could be like Orville, Orville and Wilbur, could there. be John Glenn, like anyone like that.
1: Yeah, I would say the, um, Definitely the Wright Brothers. Yeah. I mean, that would have to be number one. Interestingly enough, I actually met Buzz Aldrin, but I would have said either Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin, but I did. I met Buzz Aldrin. That was cool. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say the Wright Brothers. Whenever
0: I hear Buzz's name, I automatically think of when he punched that random heckler in some kind of like oh, that video. Oh, yeah. Just hit him right in the face. That was awesome. <laughs> no hesitation. He like a, just I think he boom. was like
1: 72 when he did yeah, that too. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the heckler was like in his 40s. I'm like, Insane. that's awesome, man. Yeah. Buzz doesn't care. I love it. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, he lives right here, um, right here near me. I actually just saw him randomly at a restaurant about oh, two years awesome. ago, and then was able to sit down and talk with him. Yeah,
0: that's really cool. I wonder if Buzz has to pay for anything. You know, if like if Buzz's name is high enough to be like, oh, it's Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, it's
1: free. <laughs> I know, I know, and he has that unique name as well. Yeah. Well, he when I sat down and talked to him, one of his um, friends had said he actually enjoys it when people recognize him now because he's. He's very old. He's like 92. Jeez. When I met him, he was maybe 89 or 90. And, uh, you know, he, he, he enjoys the spotlight. So if you ever see him out, wave at him, say, Hey, Buzz, he'll, he'll love it.
0: Just don't piss him off. Cause you will get punched in the face. Don't piss him off. <laughs> he'll still, he'll, he may not be able to lift his arm, but he's going to, he's going to try. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite overall thing about aviation? The view.
1: Yeah. That's just a good the one. view. I, I think just, it's just the sensation. Um, some people are really into the actual physical parts of an airplane, the engineering. I think that's okay. But for me, it's just the actual physical sensation. I, I just love, I'm the type of person who'll just stare out the window all day long. Yeah. But I think just, I think the beautiful view that'll never get old. I'm a big view guy too. I would agree with that. Yeah.
0: What's your favorite flight you've ever had?
1: My first solo flight in the T-37. And that was my first solo flight ever, actually.
0: No way. So, really?
1: Wow. First time I ever soloed an airplane. I think that's when you really know that you can do it. Because up to that point, you might think you can do it. And uh, everybody could tell you that you're good, um, that, you, that you have good landings. But until you actually take an airplane up and down safely on your own, you never really know. And I think that was the first time I knew. And when I got down, I felt felt like a king. And I'm like, I can do this. What's your so least think. favorite flight you've ever flown? My least favorite flight was probably, oh gosh, it has to be some of the flights that I failed in pilot training. Yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah. I, I mean, there were two of them that I, that I failed I, probably the the first one, I think the first time when you actually hook a check ride and you have that unset on your record and it matters and you know, it's going to affect your career. uh, That, that was, that was one. And for for me, it was when I actually, it wasn't during the flight. It was after the flight when I taxied over a hold short line.
0: Oh no, you did
1: everything right. Yeah. Did everything right. And at the very end, so we landed, it was a, it was a, it was at Laughlin Air Force Base. They have three parallel runways. We landed on the middle runway and we're taxing, you know, obviously we had to hold short of the inside runway and the, on that particular taxiway, it was um, a hold short line that just happened to be very far in. It, it didn't, it didn't align with the concrete. And so I just was not paying attention and went over it. And um, yeah, I'd say Either that one or the, the low level flight in the, that I had the T thirty eight where I went too fast and you know failed that ride. So it's a toss
0: up between those two rides. And nothing would be more soul crushing than you killing a flight, landing. Everything is all your nervousness is gone, and then just one yeah. small mistake. And even the guy in the back is probably like, "No, you did not just do that."
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: he's like, "I can't I know, pass I you because of that." I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: I know. And we forget in those early years how much those flights mattered. You're getting yeah. graded every time. And, you know, it's just your whole career rides on it. There's a lot of stress in it. It's yeah. it really, so I feel for students. I try to remember that, you know, they are under a lot of stress.
0: What's your favorite airport, favorite airport you've ever landed at? It would have to be
1: favorite airport ever would have to be, uh, Bagram, Bagram Air Base in, uh, Afghanistan. What's your least favorite? uh, My least favorite airport to ever land at is, um, Oh man. I don't know if I ever really hated landing at any airport. Um, I, we are probably like, I'd say Chicago O'Hare. Hey, <laughs> hey, you know, hey,
0: come on now. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs>
1: but only because I'm not as good at navigating the ground as you, as somebody who's based there. Like yeah. When you first land at Chicago, it's like now the pain starts. Just I mean, don't stop. Like- Whatever
0: you do, if you make a mistake, just keep going. <laughs> They'll fix it, but don't stop.
1: <laughs> I think the first time I landed there, you know, of course, as the FO, you're in charge of the radios on the ground. And I, they're like, you know, taxi, you know, November Bravo, whiskey, whiskey, papa, blah blah blah, 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 blah. And I just looked at the captain and I just froze. <laughs> He's like, never mind, man. I, I know where to go. Just 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 keep just just sit there. That's so really yeah, I mean it's it's a great airport. I, I don't you know, it's not a, a uh, dig it's fine. The airport itself. It's more like just when you're on the ground there. It's yeah. like Dude, you got to pay attention.
0: I'm not going to lie. I hate going to O'Hare too, but that's because we go to Midway uh, and Midway is just so easy. O'Hare, we have 45 minute taxis, hour taxis, like just forever. Yeah. It's like, can we please just fly to Midway? Pawaukee? even though Pawlokki Airport's kind of a pain in the butt too, but uh, yeah. can we just go to
1: Midway? It's so much
0: easier, please.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you asked me about my favorite. I mean, Bagram was definitely a difficult place to land. Like When I was there early Oh well, O one. I mean, it was uh, or no, it was O two actually. O two, no lights. We had half a runway. Oh wow, we we landed on night vision goggles. Actually, we did not land. There was the whole airfield was blacked out. But that's what made it fun was that you know you're you're um kind of going down there and into the abyss. And so I just thought I liked the adventure of it, and I liked being there with my friends and flying the A ten. So yeah. that'll be my favorite airport that I've I've ever flown into.
0: Would you rather fly IFR or VFR?
1: No oh, VFR. VFR for sure. <laughs> um, but again, mostly because I've done that in the A-10, which is super easy to fly. Uh, VFR is great when you know where you are. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you know where you are and it's great weather VFR, you can't beat it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, if, if you don't know where you are, man, get that clearance. It's, would
0: you ra- <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Would you rather fly yeah. over mountains, beaches, cities, oceans, since that's what you're gonna be doing a lot soon. <laughs> what would you rather fly over?
1: Uh, if it's low level, uh, yeah, mountains. I think just going down in the canyons. Um, I would fly the A10 up in northern Arizona, and there's this uh, low level route that we would do, and you could literally be down inside of canyons where you have maybe a quarter mile on each side of you, and um, make sure the airplane can handle it. You know, you don't want to get yourself in a box canyon, but uh, yeah, going up and down mountains is just beautiful. Right? A low level in a in a in an airplane like the A-10 um,
0: is nothing better than that. Airbus or Boeing? Uh, Boeing. <laughs> Favorite airline livery?
1: Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm actually not going to say United. Um, Proud of you. I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> Favorite livery. I, I don't, you know, I think probably, probably, probably JetBlue. They have some interesting, I saw one, one time it was like, they had the Simpsons. Oh really? They had the whole the whole like Simpsons. I think it was a JetBlue airplane. They, just, they got they got pretty imaginative, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd say that. I don't know. They're all kind of pretty pretty vanilla. But the ones that get creative, <laughs> we had a Star Wars one at United. They painted the whole. Yeah, airplane. that one's cool. I like Star that Wars one.
0: Thing. That, that was really pretty
1: cool. All
0: right, next but, yeah. one. And, uh, would you? All right, so you're in your a ten again. Would you rather fly yeah. as many short trips as possible in one day, or the longest possible flight you can do? Now, am I in the A-10 you said? Yeah, you're in the A-10. We're making it hard or maybe easy because you're probably too short. I'm guessing.
1: I would go, if I'm in an A-10, then um, yeah, definitely multiple
0: short flights, I would say. And then 787, yeah. It's probably going to be the longest flight you can do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Although I haven't flown any of those really long ones yet. I've only done, you know, the five hour flights. That's been the longest one in the 737. Yeah, um, And I, those are okay. It can get kind of exhausting doing multiple flights in an airliner. Yeah. Um, but in an A-10, it's no biggie. So yeah, if I'm in an A-10, I'll go with the short ones. Hardest check ride you've ever taken? Uh, my uh, T-38 check ride in the, my T-38 low level check was the hardest one.
0: So that's the and one that you're talking up, about where you went too fast.
1: Yeah, that was one that I failed. Uh, so it's a low level check where you have to, you know, hit certain points on a low level ride. And And I was at Laughlin Air Force Base and there were four low levels there. And three of them were like, they're like large mountains were the points. Like you couldn't miss them. You know, a a monkey could have passed that check ride. I was given the one that had like road intersections, power lines, like very difficult. It was just luck of the draw or bad luck of the draw. And, um, so I made this low level route and back in the nineties, you had to actually draw it out and like spin the winds and, you know, <laughs> get your, yeah, it was pretty bad. And like, your iPad? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: I had a paper map and everything. And oh, the, mor- the morning, of, yeah, the morning of the check ride, the winds shifted a little bit, but I didn't think it would matter. Well, it mattered. <laughs> so I do my check, I do the actual flight and, uh, you know, I found most of the points, but it was getting tough at the end to actually see where I, to know where I was. And I realized that it kind of like in the last 30 seconds, I knew where I was. And so that's when I went really fast to try to make my time. And that's when I went 465 knots and the speed limit was 420 knots. And so that's when I failed. (laughs) So just kind of not knowing where I was, but it all came down to having a difficult uh, low level and then not spinning the winds, not, not doing my, my planning like I should have. So got lazy and I paid the price.
0: Would you rather fly or commute to your plane? Say you don't live in LA, you live somewhere else. You got to commute to your 787. Would you rather be a passenger on an ERJ or a CRJ?
1: Oh, the, uh, I don't even know the tip. So I know like there's like the RJ 200 and then the, what do you mean by the ERJ? The
0: Embraer like 145, the, like oh, the smallest, oh. smallest ones. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the, I think the Embraers are better. I'd rather be on that. Um, they seem, they seem to be more comfortable, but you asked me about whether I want to commute or fly.
0: You're, yeah. You'd be the, you'd be a passenger in the back. So you're like oh, deadheading heading to the airplane.
1: Uh, I'd rather well, I'd rather be flying my own airplane there. Than, <laughs> there you go. Than being, yeah, than being a passenger. Yeah, I think just being up front is just your own personal A ten. <laughs> yeah, it's just better. Like you got more responsibility in your flying, yeah. but I think the seat's more comfortable. Um, so yeah, I think I'd rather fly than than deadhead.
0: Piper or Cessna. If you had to buy your own airplane, what would you want?
1: I don't know a whole lot about GA, but I think uh, I go by which one has
0: the has the low wing. There you go. I like low wing planes too.
1: Yeah, I don't like how when I turn I can't see anything.
0: I mean, I take so. any kind of plane to be honest. If anyone's listening, but <laughs> I'll take a low wing.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you want to give one to me, I'll take. Yeah,
0: one, right. But, I'll um, gladly fly a high wing. <laughs> yeah, is the Piper a low wing? I don't even know. I'm. I'm yeah, Piper's idiot. are more are, are low wings. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll take that one. There you
0: go. All right, my last one <laughs> I is. I guess I have two. Uh, what's the biggest win of your career, and then what's your biggest regret?
1: the biggest win of my career was, um, Oh man, that's a, that's a, like the biggest thing that I've done well, just the thing that you're most proud of. The thing I'm most proud of, I would say is, um, I I think just becoming an instructor in the A-10. I think that's the thing I'm most proud of. I've done that the longest I've affected the the most number of young fighter pilots. Uh, so I think just becoming an instructor and then doing it for so long, I'm, I'm most proud of that, especially in that airplane. Every time I talk to somebody, everybody loves it. The ground yeah. troops love it. I, so I'm, I'm very thankful. Um, and I'm most proud of that. Yeah. And then the second question you asked me was, what was the second one?
0: The biggest regret. So something that you wish you didn't do or wish you would have taken or just like something that just like not keeps you up at night that you think about every once in a while.
1: I would say the, the biggest regret is, man, I kind of feel bad saying this out loud, but I think it's true. It's not pursuing test pilot school because I did ultimately want to become an astronaut and you have to become a test pilot to do that. And there are good reasons why I didn't do it. One was just back when I was of that age where I could get in, I was, uh, I, I didn't have the grades. I didn't think I was competitive. I had a lot of other things I wanted to do. But now that space is just literally taking off all over the world, I kind of wish I had that on my resume and I wish um, I had just I had gone for that. So I think I, had, I did have the opportunity at one time to, to at least apply. I wish I had applied uh, because you just never know. Never you you know. never know. Yeah. You never know when a feather in your cap is going to become a, a, a worthy thing. Um, so you just, I could have done that for a few years. And then, uh, if I had gotten in again, I don't know if I I, I didn't apply. And the reason I didn't apply is because I had a, I had a colonel tell me that I I wasn't qualified back in 1990. What a punk seven. I know a punk man. I was like, Hey, I want to become a test test pilot. He's like, really? What were your, what was your, uh, degree? in? I said, well, civil engineering. He was like, okay, that's pretty good. What was your GPA? (laughs) 2.6. He goes, no chance. (laughs) I was like, really? He's like, yeah, don't even bother. And um, here's what you have to do. And it's over. I was like, crap. Well, so much for that. <laughs> that turned out not to be the but case. Like, yeah, yeah. It turned out not to be the case. And um, so I think that's my biggest regret. So, you know, Hey, now I just got to settle for maybe getting rich and paying Elon to take me up there.
0: Hey, that's not a bad thing. At. I literally <laughs> just interviewed someone who flew on the blue origin flight the last one. So, Oh, any, okay. Any pay to get on there. So, Hey, you can make it happen, man. Just got to get think, the rich I think part. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know.
1: And, you know, I think, you know, maybe in 10 year, five, 10 years, the price might come down, you Let's know, so. so
0: I think, I think we'll have a chance. Well, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I do have one more question for you. Uh, yeah. But before we do that, I just want to say thank you. Uh, your story is awesome. And uh, you've done a lot of cool things. Uh, I wish you the best with your podcast. Wish you the best flying across the world on the 787. Well, my last uh, question for you is someone that has accomplished a lot of things. You know, you, you're, you're technically a lawyer, you're a pilot, you're in the military, you've set goals, you've achieved them. What are your three steps or what's your system for achieving success? What's your system for making sure uh, your goals are attainable and you can go reach them and, and make it happen?
1: Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's has been a really, a really fun conversation. So you've, you run a great podcast. I'm going to push it to, to my listeners as well. So, um, so thanks for that. As far as... My recommendations for success, I would say the first thing is to is to, uh, is to figure out who you are and what motivates you. So you have to f- find out what you actually want to do. Okay. And then once you find that out, the, the next step is to talk to somebody who's done it before you. So just a one hour conversation with somebody who's been there before you, I think will um will give you that perspective. So that's, that's number one. And then number two is to do what I did at the air force Academy is to find, take things in bites, take things in a bite that you think that you can uh, deal with and set yourself those small goals, achieve those goals. So I'd say the opposite of what the air force said (laughs) in the eighties and nineties where they said, aim high. Well, I want to say like, don't, a- aim to where you think you can get. Give yourself a a a a goal that you can achieve and that you'd be proud of. And success comes from confidence. And the way you get confidence is to achieve those those goals. Okay. So, so yeah, I would say start small, achieve those. Talk to somebody who's done it before, and um, and next thing you know, when you look back, you'll be some, you'll be you'll be quite proud of what you've done.
0: I love it, man. Those are, those are great words to live by and coming for someone that has been successful in a lot of different facets. It's something to take into consideration. And, uh, if you're listening to this, you want to be in the military, uh, Take heart to what he said, uh, start early, start as soon as you can and set a goal and do it. And if it doesn't work, it's okay. You can find other, other ways to get your dream, whether it's be a pilot, whether it's be in the military or fly in the military, or maybe quit aviation and go be a lawyer, just like Greg mm-hmm. <laughs> and then come back.
1: Yeah. But it's a, it's a long journey. Yeah. It and, is. It, and, it, and it only, and it only ends when you say it ends. Absolutely. It, it doesn't, it doesn't end, um, when somebody else says it ends, it sends, it ends when you say it ends.
0: Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're in control. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun, man. I wish you the best in everything.
1: Yeah, thanks, man.
0: I will uh, hope to talk to you soon, man. Good luck. And that's a wrap of episode 195 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening today and sharing with your friends and forcing them to subscribe. Who knows, you might've just made them an aviation fanatic and now they want to be a pilot. So good job. You've done your part, but I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. I hope you're having a great day and as always, happy flying.